Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome back to Game of Thrones 2 Electric Boogaloo. I'm your host, Anthony. Linda Antonsen is back to cover Sansa's second POV chapter. This is the hands tourney. Linda was excited to cover this particular chapter, and I was excited to have her. Linda, as you already know, is Martin's co-author. She co-authored World of Ice and Fire with uh, he and Elio Garcia. Martin has said that she knows more about Westeros than he does. And she is one of the co-creators of Westeros.org. And on top of that, after more than 20 years of living in this space, she really still has a passion for the project and uh, so and, and was especially keen to cover the Hands Tourney. Steve and I cover Misa, season finale for season three. And Jana Matthews and I continue our conversation about guest right and hospitality. Without further ado, here is medievalist Jana Matthews. In many places in the ancient Near East, being dishonored was tantamount to being killed, yeah. right? It was, well, it was worse to be dishonored than yeah. to actually physically die because the dishonoring would have an impact on your entire clan. And, and your progeny, and, you know, it would, it would last longer than your own life. Sure. I mean, there's also laws regarding hospitality and codes there, too. And that's one of the reasons why, you know, Joffrey Baratheon's death is so, you know, is a violation of that code, which is when you're having a party, parties are meant to, are often meant as peace building mm. activities. And so you're kind of po- supposed to put your differences aside and join together. And, you know, that's a safe place. Everyone puts their weapons away. That this was a this was an environment where where people are not supposed to be killing each other. Again, mm. like there's ways in which that gets violated all the time, but in theory, it was supposed to be um, kind of a safe place. Discover why critics are calling Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes the best film of the franchise. What a wonderful day! It's a jaw-dropping spectacle that demands to be seen on the biggest screen possible. I need to go. Hang on. It is our time. Kingdom of the Planet of the Apes. Now playing only in theaters. Rated PG-13. Some material may be inappropriate for children under 13. Here's a question for you. Has George ever forgotten that a character is dead and doesn't know it and needs your advice. Like, is this character alive or dead? Gosh, I do, have you had anyone who has been dead? 
of course I blank too many names. Uh, Elio is the one who's like super on all the names, well, but basically there's, there's lots of names. That's for sure. <laughs> yeah. There are a few changes between the appendices in the books where occasionally it's not clear what happened to a character, uh-huh. whether they died or, or not. Now, if something like that, yeah. if there was a sort of a snafu in the appendix, is George the kind of guy who would think, okay, now I have to figure out how to write that into the story or or drop a little hint later on that this is actually how that happened? Or would he shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's just the appendix? Well, the first time or one of the first times that we were in contact with him was about an appendix issue, in fact. Uh, it was after the publication of The Hedge Knight, where we realized that the ages of the Targaryen kings did not match up sure. with Baelor, Makar, and their ages. So he basically had to switch, make a brother and uncle instead. I see. I, I, I. So he had to do an adjustment for the next appendices. Obviously, that was purely on historical characters. Uh, so that was not a problem. Uh-huh. There have been issues when we worked on The World of Ice and Fire where Elio pointed out a time discrepancy on a historical character, like mm. a way back historical character. And um, George unfortunately said, you're the only one who's going to catch that, Elio. <laughs> nope. Elio's not the only one who caught nope. that. <laughs> so sometimes George still lives in the bubble where he does not realize just how many very, very obsessive fans he has. He occasionally thinks that, well, there can't be more crazy people like Elio out there. <laughs> no, there are. <laughs> there are. There are. <laughs> there are. Uh, so, so yes. Uh, but otherwise, he certainly tries to, when it is in the concurrent story, sort of the present story, that obviously takes priority. Mm-hmm. I mean, we submit when we catch things. We do submit to the editors and if it's straightforward fixes, they fix them. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you know, it, it runs by George and uh, he comes up with some solution mm-hmm. for... Uh... Linda, do you get the sense that it really helps to have a good branding effort if you're a knight? Yes, certainly. That is part, I think, of the of the whole chivalric culture as uh, Martin um, displays it and how he, he writes about it. If you want to be famous, I mean, it helps to have talent for sure, right? But if you want to be a famous knight, you have to have a really great nickname or you have to have a really dynamic branding effort. I think generally they tend to go together. I mean, you you get... so, some nicknames or by names are, you know, more basic, like you've got Barristan the Bold, but that kind of <laughs> sums it up pretty well and yeah. it alliterates. So it's got that classic feel to it. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, a lot of people or some fans will think, you know, Knight of Flowers. Well, that sounds kind of sissy. <laughs> you, you get some people who, who have that attitude, but obviously, if you look at the way that Loris uses it with mm-hmm. in the tourney with, with Sansa, like you know, picking out the, the flowers from yeah. his cloak and everything, it's uh, it's very much uh, something that he can use and that fits the it obviously fits the Tyrrell imagery mm-hmm. and it fits the chivalric imagery and all of that. And then you know you get the more sinister ones as well that clearly imply that you're 
quite badass. Like, mm-hmm. okay, how do you get the name the Red Viper? Well, <laughs> you obviously didn't do something nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, Night of Flowers certainly works on Sansa. She says that there's nothing more beautiful that she's ever seen in her life. And uh, and she has an eye for knights. I mean, she's she's observing them all pretty carefully. Yeah, she's really learned the um, the part of a lady at a tournament. You know, they don't get a lot of them up in Winterfell. Right. Um, the Starks are more about melees and the you know more rustic and rougher parts of it. So they, this whole turning experience is is new to her in person, but she knows what it is about, and she has been taught what. What to watch for? Are they riding well? Are they behaving gallantly? Mm. She knows exactly. She is um, an expert watcher of the sport of jousting. Poor Jory. Jory. <laughs> poor, poor, poor Jory has not figured out how to brand himself. Uh, he, <laughs> uh, he, he just looks like a pale comparison. Yeah. He's a shadow of a knight. I mean... A limp cloak. (laughs) (laughs) Now he—that's not good for your brand, (laughs) right? Now he has talent, right? He does well in the tournament. He does well, you know, representing the North. He does fairly well. However, he just—he—he doesn't have someone behind him saying, "Okay, now what's your thing?" Right? Let's let's create a symbol for you. You know, let's let's get a better cloak for you. That kind of thing. Yeah, he needs the guy that you have in uh, Monty Python and the Holy Grail <laughs> that's following behind <laughs> and writing the story yeah. and you know, really telling everyone how amazing you are. <laughs> or the yeah. guy in Spinal Tap who's having to explain to him, like this is this is what a good album cover looks like. <laughs> And this is why maybe that one's not great. You know, he he really needs a little help in that regard. Yeah, he needs a manager. (laughs) He does. Jory needs a manager. All right. This chapter, man, this chapter is amazing. Oh, yeah. I was reading it last night, and it was late. And I thought, you know what? I got to read this again. It's such a... Look, if you're listening to this podcast, and you're not reading along with the book, at least read this one chapter. It's just magnificent. So here's my synopsis. Asanza, Septa Mordain, and Jane Poole ride to the hand's tourney. Sansa marvels at the magnificence of the event. Thousands have arrived to view the martial display, but few have a better view than Sansa. She loves it all, the gallantry, the drama, the armor, and especially the beautiful and talented Night of Flowers. Jane is undone by a gruesome death caused by the point of Gregor's lance, but even that only fascinates Sansa. She briefly meets Peter Baelish, who cryptically recalls his affection for Cat. After the sun sets, she sits beside Joffrey at the feast. Joffrey and Sansa eat and laugh and flirt until the feast ends abruptly from Robert's drunken outburst. The hound escorts Sansa home and mocks her courtesies. He scares her to tears when he forces her to look at his scars. Then... In the dark, Sandor Clegane recounts his childhood trauma, the story behind his ruined face. Sansa feels compassion for him as he sees her to her room. Before leaving, he tells her that if she reveals the secret of his burnt face to anyone, he will kill her. Linda Antonsen, would you like to talk about a character, a theme, a plot point, or shall you and I just climb the ladder of chaos? I think we can start a little 
thematically, and then it'll probably descend into chaos. I love it. Into I, chaos. I, I can't wait. Yeah. So tell me about it. So thematically, so you're noticing a, a couple themes here? I mean, my favorite part about this is that this is probably the chapter that most clearly illustrates how George plays with the two sides of the Middle Ages. Mm. You start off with the wonderful pageantry. You have all these wonderful colors or the the way that she says, you know, the curtain of the literature yeah. turns everything to gold. It's, it's, it's this fantasy world yeah. and it is better than the songs. Uh, this is the the Middle Ages of the chivalric legend. And that, that is what Sansa sees. That is what Sansa has been raised to see, this wonderfully idealistic picture of the Middle Ages. This, this mm. is, you know, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, the height of everything good and chivalric. Mm. And by the end of the chapter, we are in this very dark place yeah. where Sandor recounts to her what a knight has done to him, so, or somebody who is knighted afterwards anyway. His brother is not a knight at the time, but he becomes a knight and is able to commit such an atrocious act on his own brother, on a child. So you get this, um, you got on the one side of the, the pageantry and the, the, the colorful, technicolor Middle Ages, as I tend to call them. On the other and you have this, the, the hyper medieval part, mm -hmm. which is all grim, dark, and dirty and brutal. Um, I tend to go to uh, uh, the comparison with uh, with Monty Python's Holy Grail here, with you know the, the, when they're riding out in that muddy field, and you've got the anarcho-syndicalist peasants mm. there who deny mm. uh, that <laughs> Arthur is king just because he he got the sword lobbed at him by a, <laughs> a moistened bint or whatever. I, I love that whole exchange. But basically he says, you know, he identifies him as the king because he hasn't got any shit on him. <laughs> now Th that's like yeah. that's the hyper medieval the, the really dirty side and and a lot in the song of ice and fire yeah. is george playing with those two images yeah. and the contrast and when people like sansa story in particular is about realizing that life is not a song now i think now try this on for size you can tell me what you think about this i think that unless you have these little moments where you can kind of see this, um, you know, let's say, let's say we see uh, King's Landing through yellow silk, right? So we see this idealized King's Landing. Unless we have those little moments, the cruelty doesn't work nearly as well. Like the darkness of the way this chapter ends is all the more dark because we've seen how beautiful it can be through Sansa's eyes. Absolutely. I think that really is one of uh, the major themes that George works with in terms of sort of loss. I mean, loss overall. Right. So loss of beauty, loss of innocence, um, 
ruins is something that has figured in his work, not just in uh, Song of Ice and Fire, but particularly in other novels and short stories. Ruins that are left behind mm. the, uh, are... I mean, we see it in later on in the Song of Ice and Fire, where they visit the um, the city when the, when they're traveling on on the Rhine and go through uh, uh, Croyne, the uh, the Rhinish city, ruined mm-hmm. and, and all wrapped in mist, and uh, the sadness of of the loss of beauty and that cannot be recaptured uh, is absolutely always present, and for that. To work, you have to experience it, or you have to see that there are some people who see this beauty and then it's taken away mm-hmm. from them. Mm-hmm. It makes it much more poignant. It makes it hit yeah. much harder than if you just open up. You can do that. I mean, I don't know. Have you read uh, Mary Gentle's uh, Ash? Yes, A Secret History. Yes, where the first. I think it's the first line is it was her scars that made her beautiful. Yeah. I mean, you're starting off, you're starting off very dark <laughs> with this you know what? mercenary yes. girl. So you can do it, but it's a, it's a very different experience. This remind in this way, this chapter reminds me a little bit of Brand's second POV chapter. In that, the entire the entire chapter is exploring. Uh, really Bran's love for climbing. So he's a very able-bodied person. But through that, you're also learning about all of the nooks and intricacies of Winterfell, right? Because he's climbing all over Winterfell. And it's so important to him. It's so important to him that he can, you know, climb high, uh, higher than anyone else, and commune with the birds. And uh, it's just core to his identity that he's an able-bodied person. And so when he falls, and then we find out what's been taken away from him, anyway. it's a real moment of grief. And this, and something very yeah. similar is happening to Sansa in this chapter, I think, really core to her identity yeah. is this mythology of the Seven Realms and the mythology of the, the, the gallant and honorable knight or the true knight. Yeah. Core, this is just... That's, 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 no, it it shakes her so much. Yes, yeah. and so when that is taken away from her, um, I mean, it's taken it it's taken away it, it, tiny bits and pieces here and there. Uh, yeah. She's realizing They're chipping that, away at yes. it. Obviously, she's already lost her wolf. That's right. Seen, but there, she's trying to, as we see in this chapter, she tries to put it on. Oh, it was Arius and and mm-hmm. Cersei's fault. It's, it's not my Joffrey. That's right. She still has her faith in in him, and because something beautiful can't be evil. She needs to tell her that self that story over and over and over again. Mm. Yes, yes. She she ha- she knows that Joffrey's a monster, but has convinced herself that he's not. She knows that the Night of Flowers is just the picture of beauty. And, you know, she, these are the stories she keeps telling herself over and over and over again. And then when she, and she has that moment in the dark with Sandor, yeah. it's some, it's like, I don't know if she's going to be able to recover from that, that, it, that vivid image of what a knight will actually do. Um, that, you know, I, I think that George yeah. is trying to teach her and us that there really is no true knight 
Um, but but you really need to see that mythology first to have it deconstructed. You do, and I think that the interesting thing is uh, I've seen uh, and and Elio and I have talked on a number of occasions on the the parallels between, in that sense, between Sansa and Brienne. Yeah, because it. it First of all, it's quite funny that when you're sort of talking about the true knight, I mean, Brienne, who cannot be a knight, is <laughs> perhaps the truest knight yeah. in the whole of the of, of the series. Yeah. In, in that, because she she really tries to live up to these ideals, and in many ways, she is she is a sound sign that she has this very naive outlook and she also believes in, in chivalry uh-huh. she believes in things being beautiful yeah. and righteous and, also and just also core to her identity right is very much core to her identity and the way she attaches herself to to renly and and sees him as an uh, an example of 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 this of other of a just king and he's 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 kind he he he's beautiful he has you know treated her well mm-hmm. with you know courtesy and all of that and then of course it's chipped away from her she holds on mm-hmm. and i mean to some extent sansa tries to hold on as to her identity as yeah. well but this whole stripping away of uh, things that are important to you and stripping away parts of your identity happens to so many characters. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I'm thinking I was going to try to get to this a little bit later, but I might as well mention it now. I, I do think that there's this, this back and forth between um, how I feel about the hound, because I feel like I've been trained, you know, just, just being a reader of literature and, reader of fantasy literature in particular, I've been trained to think, okay, here here's the hound who looks like a villain. But what do I know about him so far? He tells the truth. And um and twice Sansa has stumbled in this story and he has helped her from stumbling. He did the first time they met, she, he she stumbles because she's mm. uh, afraid of um ill and pain. And she like trips over her feet, and she initially she thinks it's her father that has kind of caught her from falling, and she turns around and of course is the hound, and she freaks out. Well, that something similar happens in this story too. She stumbles, and the hound catches her from falling. And I think that I'm supposed to believe, okay, well this guy looks like a villain, but in reality. He may be a true knight. You know, he's not a, he's not a knight in truth, but he may be a truer knight than his brother, for instance. Yes. And then the story ends and I'm thinking, "Oh, well he's he's threatening to murder a a little girl." <laughs> so he's yeah, he's kind of an asshole too. Yeah. <laughs> but that's but that's the brilliant uh that's the brilliance of this book is that yeah, he is an asshole. Um we have a lot of indications that he's an asshole, but He's he boy. He's just he he's a lovable scoundrel, right? Yeah. The, he, the, both of those things can be true, right? Yeah, that they can. I mean, because he, I mean, he's already killed Micah. Yes, and, and done so in a very you know he didn't run fast enough. Very sort of 
<laughs> yeah, he makes a joke. Yeah, a joke about it. Yeah. And uh, he, you know, he, he carries out various commands of Joffrey's and he knows that Joffrey is a little shit. Yes, and, yes. And he does these things anyway. He He takes some sort of perverse pleasure in being his dog. I think he, because he obviously has a very strange outlook on on himself mm-hmm. on his place in this society he's so disillusioned about knights and uh, you know, spits on being called a sir mm-hmm. uh, which is not strange given the the uh, the view of knighthood that being you know Gregor Clegane's brother w- would give mm-hmm. you um he knows that you can be uh, a knight and, and a complete monster, mm-hmm. so uh, it's given him a very bleak outlook on things. It's very interesting. The first time that I read Game of Thrones, Game of Thrones, I um, I reacted very negatively to the Hound. Um, I would because, in part, if there's any character that I can identify with, how I would react sort of in the story it's it's Sansa mm. actually in a sense that mm. I I grew up reading um, you know stories about King Arthur in the round table and, and had this very um, idealistic view of chivalry and knighthood so to have somebody say that you know knights are you know pile of crap basically <laughs> I, I kind of you know i don't like this guy's attitude at all <laughs> well uh, he is a child murderer i mean there is that part yeah it's hard to it's hard to get away from that the that fact of the matter um and but okay tell me tell me this i i mean certainly gregor is a monster but i think that sandor knows that there's a little bit of that monster in him too, and I th- I think he knows, for instance, that he I don't know if he enjoys being Joffrey's dog, but I think that being Joffrey's dog allows him a certain power and a certain freedom to be a man of violence. Whereas if he had if he was working for someone else, if he was working for Renly or something then he wouldn't have nearly as much opportunity to to sort of explore that explore that part of himself true i mean i think he um he has been made i mean he's damaged and he feels i think that i might as well live up to this um personality that life uh, mm. has given nobody's going to people are going to flinch when they look at me mm. so i'm going to give them a reason to flinch right i'm i'm going to be the monster that uh, they think i am right. by my looks so in some sense it is that self-fulfilling prophecy yeah. uh, much much like the way that uh, jamie kind of tries to take pride in being called the Kingslayer. Yeah, he really kind of leans into that in, that identity. Whereas, right? I mean, he started out as a Sansa himself. Huh. Yes. He started out admiring 
these great knights admiring mm. Arthur Dane wanting to be the sword of the morning and praying the, to the, the warrior, right? Yes, and then has that taken away from him and see has sort of the the veil pulled from mm-hmm. his eyes uh seeing how Aerys well, is treating his wife mm-hmm. and the fact that the other king's guard will not intervene and that he's just supposed to keep to his vow and stay out of it mm-hmm. uh, and then when he then becomes the kingslayer he sort of t- tries to take pride in it just like Sandor tries to take pride in uh being viewed the way he is, and there's a capacity for violence in in these men. Absolutely, mm-hmm. in in the society, um, there are very few men who don't have this capacity for violence brought out. Well, and in certain contexts, it's rewarded, right? I mean, we, yes. we saw we saw something like that in the blood sport of the tournament. Is oh, that yes. if you if you can focus that capacity for violence. You can do well, and as long as you know the state has kind of rubber stamped, um, you know this is this is the kind of violence that is okay. Then the person who does it best will be rewarded for that. I mean, there's a very interesting contrast that I hadn't thought about before in what happens. She, the first uh, bloody thing that Sansa notes in the chapter is the hedge knight that disgraces him by killing himself by killing Beric Dondarrion's horse by mistake. Uh-huh. And he is then, uh, he forfeits his victory. Uh, whereas nothing like that happens to Gregor Clegane for actually killing his opponent. Mm-hmm. Yes. The horse is valued higher. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Yeah, there are these, there are these rules mm. that, uh, this kind of rubber stamp the the good kind of violence and but the bad kind of violence will bring you disgrace and i think that the hound is someone who he knows that it's all bullshit like he's going to call bullshit on the whole thing and because every everyone is telling themselves the same lies and he knows that they're lies he has no incentive to be anything other than Joffrey's dog. He knows what he is. Um, and he and he feels like I'm the only one that I don't know if he feels this way, but this is what I project on him. That he's the only one that can tell the truth about how this is all just a big deception. Um but you know, yes, he still uh, he yeah. still joins the lists, he still competes. Yeah. Uh, you know, he still does what he's told. There, he can he can thrive in this in in the midst of all of this deceit. Yes, but I think you're absolutely right that he very much feels like I, I'm the only one here who who's telling myself or anyone else the truth yeah. about what this means. Obviously, you have people who who manage to very much live up to and balance the ideals in a reasonable way and, and live long lives being fairly honest with themselves. Mm. I'd say, but, you know, Barristan manages pretty well, but even there you can argue he, he went from one king to the other. Should he have done that? Uh, so he, he has life choices that he's not entirely um, comfortable with either, but he seems to still 
mostly believe in the ideals so there it's not just the the very young that manage to still believe in in, in the ideals of chivalry sometimes they manage to hang on but uh, a lot of people probably grow very disillusioned over time and realize that it's a game that they play i you mentioned i i, I do want to talk about sansa i you mentioned that um you have a, a certain affinity for sansa mm-hmm. I want to read this one part because it's it's very striking and very different from the uh, the HBO adaptation in, in in this way. So here's a uh, here's a chapter um, from okay, I'll just read it. The jousting went all day and into the dusk, and the hooves of the great war horses pounding down the lists until the field was a ragged wasteland of torn earth. A dozen times Jane and Sansa cried out in unison as riders clashed together, lances exploding into splinters, while the commons screamed for their favorites. Jane, cover her, Jane covered her eyes when a man fell, like a frightened little girl. But Sansa was made of sterner stuff. A great lady knew how to behave at tournaments. Even Septimordain noted her composure and nodded in approval. And I okay, that that has a that chapter or that paragraph has a little parallel later on where she's noticing the the death of of uh of the knight who yeah, Hugh, who was yeah, murdered wait. basically. Yeah. Yes. And she looks on with fascination. I don't get the sense that Sansa is uh I think that Sansa and Arya may have more in common than they would care to admit. Sansa is maybe on the surface is this sort of prim and proper little lady, but she has greater aspirations. And on top of that, she's not squeamish. And I thought that was a very, a very great portrayal of someone who has sort of this, this potential to be, you know, someone like I—I I, I don't want to say Cersei, but Lady Olena or or Catelyn or something like someone like that, who's a very um, a very strong and noble woman in this world. The, the, there is a wolf somewhere yes. deeper in, and obviously, and I mean, Catelyn is a very strong character as well, and has yeah. taught her daughter to be a. Uh, what a, a lady has to be able to do, and um, of course, the the interesting part about the second section there, where the hue of the veil is killed, yeah. um, is the way that it is described from Sansa's uh, perspective. Uh, it's almost beautiful. Mm-hmm. She had um, never seen a man die before. She ought to be crying too, she thought. But the tears would not come. Perhaps they had been used up. Perhaps she had used up all of her tears for Lady and Bran. It would be different if it had been Jory or Sir Roderick or Father, she told herself. So she she's noticing, she's also self-aware. She's noticing, maybe I should be crying, but I just I just don't feel anything in that way for this nameless knight or this... Yeah, un- and also this, that she focuses on the 
uh, there will be no songs sung for him. Yeah. That was sad. That that His part death, was uh, yes. <laughs> uh, the fact that she's still she's still in her story here. Yeah, exactly. But it's um, but just the the way that she describes the blood there. The his cloak was blue, the color of the sky on a clear summer's day, trimmed with a border of crescent moons. But as his blood seeped into it, the cloth darkened and the moons turned red one by one. Very ominous yeah. and sort of and very poetic in a way yeah. that she sees these. So she observes it and still f- sees it as I said. It, it's sort of part of this story and. The, you know, she should be she should be sad, but the, the saddest part is that he's not going to have any songs sung for him. Yeah, I mean, this is all this this entire event is, and then the blood is just covered up. <laughs> yeah, right. You just shove it's, a little just, dirt on the blood. Let's keep going. <laughs> which is interesting because you've got that parallel much later there, since you brought up Arya in after her uh, murders at Heron Hall. Where she thinks or say that the rain will wash away the blood on her. Oh, hands. interesting. Okay, I hadn't, I and hadn't then made it's, that connection. It's gone. Yeah. Right. So yeah, the blood, the blood is fleeting. This person's life was mm. fleeting. Mm. If they can manage to live well enough to be sung about, that's basically the best that you could do, right? Yeah. I mean, that's that's, that, that's the, the immortality. Yeah. That's the immortality you can hope yeah, for. Right. 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 Sure. Um, does uh, more about Sansa here, Linda? Do you think that Sansa cares at all about Jane Poole? I don't think they have a very deep connection. She feels clearly that Jane is a little younger and more childish than her. So um at this point certainly she she kind of she forgets about her absolutely when when she she when she leaves with Septa Mordain and um I get the sense I think they've that, grown yeah, apart. Oh, okay. uh, Say more about that, grown apart. Well in the sense that I think uh when they were back in, in Winterfell and um Sansa perhaps didn't think so much about the court and everything before Robert showed up and before the marriage was arranged. Mm. They were more on the same level. Right. Okay. But now Sansa has a marriage being discussed mm. and she's going to be a great lady. Uh, it, it's like those where, you know, you're, You've got your friends at school when you're 12, 13 or whatever. Mm. And then one of them gets a boyfriend or some new interests. And you can grow apart very quickly Mm. there. Mm -hmm. I was just noticing that when, like, Sansa always notes her presence. But doesn't care to tell us anything. She doesn't devote any of her thought world to what's going on with Jane. She observes everything else. She observes the intricacies of the the coats of arms and the colors and the and the snapping banners and the shining armor. And Jane Poole is an afterthought, even so much so that when she's clearly deeply disturbed by this yeah. murder, she's taken away. And 
Sansa doesn't even know she's gone. She's, oh, she just completely forgot about Jane and then kind of notices a little bit later that she's gone. We don't know what happens to her during the feast. And it makes me think about where Jane's character will end up, um, you know, in dance. And I think, oh, no, no one cares about Jane. Like, Sansa's supposed to be your best friend. Sansa doesn't even care about Jane. She's kind of Sansa's shadow here. Yes. Just and obviously the fact that she then ends up being the replacement Arya. The Arya, the fake Arya. <laughs> the fake Arya is it's interesting that she doesn't really have um personality and character of her own. She she as a character is overlooked. Mm-hmm. She she's um turned into nothing really she's just a name yes. and that name is then replaced right she she so she's li- i like the shadow imagery so she's lived her life in the shadow of these stark girls and her whole identity is about do, you know kind of orbiting their force of gravity and then when she's plucked away from all of that her her entire identity is now replaced by a false identity, Arya Stark. So she she never gets the ch- she really never gets the chance to be anything other than you know a poor shadow of one of these yeah. Stark girls. She's tragic, and I I she is she is. I mean, she is kind of she's one of these. Um, Victims of the, of the circumstances, much like when we see uh, Brienne traveling around in the Riverlands and seeing mm. how the the small folks suffer from the war and how they don't really care who's on the throne or mm-hmm. or whatever. It's just, whoever it is, it's, there's going to be fighting, and it's going we're, we're going to bear the brunt mm-hmm. of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so so Jane is another of these. So hapless victims uh, that doesn't get a chance to have their own. She has her own story, but it's it's not given any place because the other stories kind of crush it. Yeah, I wonder if we will hear. I, I wonder if her story will become more prominent because, I mean, I guess the analog here is she's almost the female version of Jon Snow who is always kind of, you know, living in the the shadow of Rob and orbiting the the force of gravity that is Winterfell um but always sort of taking a a, a role of subservience and and no and knows that, you know, knows what he has to do. Yeah. Um and you know he knows his place in the family. Um Jane Jane is very much, you know, she's she's not illegitimate in in any sense, but no. she does have that one down position and then just completely treated terribly, just terribly as as fake Arya. Yeah. I think that with the time that uh, Martin has invested in her in uh, A Dance with Dragons, um it's not a, a story that he is just dropping mm. uh, from that point. I mean, that 
unfortunately has been one of the writing problems, I think, not not Jane specifically, but the fact that he really wants to do right by as many characters as possible. So he always says that he imagines what the story is for um for all of them. Uh, this guardsman who's nameless, you know, yeah. Yeah. he has a backstory. So whenever he brings somebody to the forefront and starts talking about what has happened to them, he tends to want to go and give them a full arc, a full story arc. Hmm. Uh, usually full story arcs mean that you're dead by the end of them uh, <laughs> in, in Westeros. Yeah. Uh, and, and given that he has said that he needs to reduce the number of point of views and characters in general, uh, there's a lot of people who are going to see their stories wrapped up in that way, I think. But, but yes, he likes to see a completeness, not just saying, oh yeah, they, they, they passed through here and we, fu- we get a little snippet mm-hmm. of their story. Uh, very much in contrast to um, um, we read the last light of the sun by Guy Gabriel Kay. Mm, I'm, I'm not familiar. Uh, no, he is um, in that book particular. He he gives little snippets of people that the main characters encounter, mm. and then he switches over for just very briefly to give like maybe a couple of paragraphs about this person that the main characters sort of brushed up against. So just to show that there are many stories going on, and I can't tell all of them, but these decisions by the main characters are going to have effects beyond the circle of characters that I'm featuring. So just to show the whole tapestry of stories, um, whereas George tends to like to um, anyone who gets featured significantly gets uh, a beginning, a middle, and an end. Mm Hey, I want to ask you a, a question about um, Robert and Cersei. Mm. Um, clearly, the feast ends and Robert bursts. You know, he's drunk. Mm. He he says, "Look, I'm the king, and if I want to fight in the melee, I'll fight in the melee." That basically yeah. that's what he says. And I always read that like, okay, this is just sort of Cersei trying to talk sense into a man who's clearly past his prime, and then I think. But I know more about Cersei than I once did. Mm. Is it possible that Cersei is goading him? That she actually really wants him to fight? And so she tells him, no, you can't. You absolutely can't. Knowing that he will insist that he can. Yes, I think so. There's maybe a part of her that feels that I don't want my husband, you know, making a fool of himself just because it looks bad for me. On the other hand, I think she's so used to just feeling ashamed about yes. him because that that's really all she feels. Yeah, he's, he's always you know, a fool. He's a fool. He's hes drunk. He's fat. He's, you know, there, there's not an ounce of pride hmm. left in her for her husband. So whether it's conscious, I mean, she's, she's cunning. So it could very well be conscious goading here that, you know, yeah. Have him go out there and maybe you know break his back or something. I, I don't. I'm not mm-hmm. sure she thought that he would, you know, get killed or something. But you know, break a few bones and we can stick him somewhere for a few months, and I don't have to deal with him and uh, serves him right. Yeah, or she, she knows how he's gonna react. 
Yeah. I mean, it's it's very possible that she thinks it will be better for me if he's dead. I will. Oh, yes. I will be the power bef- behind Joffrey. Yeah. Um, and I don't have to deal with this fool. Um, no, absolutely. She fe- certainly feels that she would run things much uh, better than, course, than he would. And, <laughs> and they are probably the two uh, least capable people to running Westeros that you could find. Well, okay, no, I, Moon Boy might be a little bit worse, I suppose. <laughs> but um, I wouldn't um, I wouldn't vote for either Robert or Cersei. <laughs> Let me mention a few notable introductions in this chapter. Now, if I was going to mention every new name we met... Not one of those chapters where you... Oh, you can't. I mean, it's just... There's there's probably 50 names of knights that we'll never meet again that are mentioned. Or maybe we will. Maybe maybe they'll come back uh, into the story at a later date. But just a few things here. Well, um, we see Thoros and Beric... Uh, tilt against each other so yep. it's, it's interesting uh, knowing where that they end up going thoros is described as uh, one with a flapping red robes and shaven head um the seven knights of the king's guard we see them all together for the first time um but they're all kind of um nameless other than jamie it's just him that yes that's stands right out, that's uh, right uh, Moon Boy. Moon Boy is a. I think he's a wonderful book only character. Is is he a simpleton? I mean, he's too. He's too shrewd. He's too smart uh. to be a simpleton. Um, uh, Loras is clearly a stunner. I mean, he's just. He's the rock star. He's a rock star. In, star. Yes, right. In in Sansa's eyes, he's a rock star. Oh yeah, she's a groupie. Uh-huh. She's a groupie for Loras. <laughs> And it's not an introduction, but Peter makes his introduction to Sansa. And I thought it was interesting how he does it. She, Her eyes are so glued to Loras yeah. that here he is standing over her, you know, measuring her, touching her hair. Yeah. And she's not prepared for that. I thought that was a very interesting foreshadowing of, of that relationship. Yeah, she's... Uh... In his shadow. Yes, that's right. Um, book versus show differences. Boy, there's a lot. This this is yeah. so different. I mean, this is one that suffered very much from it being first season in the sense that even though in the first season they, they make a lot of attempts to stay very close, mm-hmm. the budget isn't there. It, it's much like when Robert goes on his hunt and goes walking in the woods with three guys. Um, that's not a royal hunt. <laughs> no, um, no, that, that, that's four guys getting lost in the woods for some reason. <laughs> yeah, no. That, that, yeah, I've but, never I mean, thought here, like that, but you're absolutely this right. Is so, this is so rustic. It, it's, it's this little country tourney. It's, it's all... Mm-hmm. It's quite drab as well. I, I think the one thing that I would you know, fault as a choice is the lack of color because it is so important to the pageantry mm. and we see this simplification which is unfortunately runs through the whole show that you only have the main house's banners pretty much yeah and then everyone is a banner man of them and they don't have their own banners so they don't show off all this heraldry and all the color and all the cloaks and everything that should make it look so wonderful mm. that is all 
simplified, some for budgetary reason and some for the whole let's not confuse viewers too much. Well, also the aesthetic. I think that I think mm. in general the show has dulled Martin's story. And I mean It's shades of gray very much through everything. Yes. And I think that there's, you know, there just everything from costume design to how much magic are we actually going to bring into this story? Um, how many characters can we actually have on, you know, have a story arc for? There was so much of a reduction that had to happen mm. to make the show work. And boy, oh boy, did it work. I mean, they knew what they were, they certainly knew how to make a successful show. There's no doubt about that. But, but one of the techniques I think throughout was sort of a dulling of George's aesthetic. I don't know that that was necessary. I think certainly I think you could have kept this the contrast we talked about the contrast between the the pageantry mm-hmm. and the the storybook side and then did the down to earth yeah. stuff just to bring out the contrast rather than having everyone crawling about well, the you know who I was the thinking of yeah, maybe so you know who I was thinking of specifically yeah. is Dario Naharis mm. okay, so how does he look in the book? Well, he's got dyed hair. He's got a trident beard. He's got a golden tooth that tooth. gleams. I mean, he looks... If you were going to show that guy on screen, he, you would never look at anything else. He's dressed like a clown. Uh, now, of course, Danny thinks it's great, right? But I think that... But I think that you dull that character a little bit, and now he's just a handsome hunk of sexuality. Yeah, I think that I, I do think that Dario, uh, depending on the actor, yeah, right. could have could have worked. <laughs> I think that the first Dario that they had could have carried that off. Maybe so. I, I and mean, then for some reason they went. I mean, at least that guy was making an effort to be flamboyant. Uh huh. Yeah. And then when they recast him, it was like, nah. You're just going to be over there picking some flowers. For <laughs> Which was the most Dario-unlike I thing. I know, I know. That's not what uh, would attract Daenerys Stormborn. No, right? the flowers wasn't really the thing. <laughs> uh, so Maybe I, some severed heads. Yeah, right, right. Now, just as far as the, the show differences, in the show, there's a number of major differences. But one of the major differences is that Peter Baelish does a lot of exposition for Sansa. Yeah. And it really sort of is a short... I mean, you have to kind of condense a lot of that story into sort of bite-sized bits. And so that happens. But in addition to that, Baelish outs Renly and Loras as lovers, which, which was shocking to me. I mean, certainly that's not in the book... I mean, it's there's some subtle hints in the book, yeah. but uh, but to say that like out in public where everyone can hear, I just I was kind of amazed that that they just chose to tell the story in that way. Yes, I that seemed to be one of these things where they didn't quite trust the audience just to pick up hints, mm-hmm. which is which is odd because one of the things that they argued about early on and said that we didn't want to put in the hints about. John's parentage early on because people would figure it out. You know, the, mm-hmm. the power of uh, internet 
you know, crowdsourcing of, of discussion uh, means that you can't really right. hide these sort of things. Sure. Just looking at how people picked apart things like Westworld and found little clues right. and, and so on. Uh, and it's true, if your storytelling depends on absolutely hiding things, you're going to have a problem with the way the internet works. So in that sense, they didn't want to put out hints. But then, yes, with Laura's and Renly, for some reason, they felt that they needed to put it right out there rather than just hints, which would have worked as well, I think. Mm -hmm. uh, because it changes, obviously, Sansa's perspective. I think so. I think... I mean, she has no clue until later, if even then, when she thinks that they are, you know, rescuing her by having her marry, she thinks it's Loras that she's going to marry. Yeah. And it turns out that they're proposing a plot to marry her to Willis. She doesn't realize why Loras is not marrying or why Loras wants to join the yeah, King's Yeah, she has Garden. no clue. In the, in the show, what does that do for us? It basically, it cuts short any kind of interesting reveal about Loras. Or, you know, the, Renly is a much more subtle uh, character in yeah. that regard. Um, it, it kind of sort of cuts short that. It also tells us that Baelish is the kind of person who will use information to either threaten or undermine you or something like that. So it does develop his character in that way. Yes. It was unnecessary, I thought. And, and quickly, I just glanced actually at our review of the... Uh, episode, so I don't have it entirely fresh. But he does Sander's story as well, right? Yeah, that's right. that's right. And that is even more shocking to me, because, I mean, Sander has never told anyone. Right, so Baelish has this information, Asian. and then he tells Sansa, and then he says, now, of course, if you repeat this to anyone, the, the Hound will kill you. So he actually tells her, and then he parrots the death threat. Yeah, but it steals that bit of complexity and like, and from why, the hound. Why? Yeah, and why is why is he telling Sansa that? Right. Yeah, he's he's scaring her. I I mean, Baelish is always a a little bit odd to me on screen. Like there are many characters like mm. Tywin and Tyrion, who I think are enhanced by my experience with the mm. HBO show. Baelish is not one of them. No, I think they used him too much as a plot device. Hmm. Okay. Having him driving things forward by saying certain things and by acting in certain ways so that there wasn't a consistency to his motivations. Hmm. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I think uh, I think you're probably right on that point. And having a schemer sort of yeah. they felt that it lends itself we could have him undermine people here and say things and um, overplaying his hand a lot of the time. I think way. so. And the fact that we don't get a POV chapter from Littlefinger means that the show adapters can be uh, a little bit more flexible with how they do how they treat that character. Yes. Right. I have I have one more two-part question for you. Go ahead. Okay. Of all the characters in all the stories, who would be the character that you most identify with, like deep down inside, you know that you and that character are very similar, 
as opposed to who, the character that your friends and family see when they when they think of you? That that's a tough one. I think that probably I'm a bit of a Sansa at heart. There are some things that aren't very like me, but but the sort of the, the, some of that naive innocence and I, I've always said because I mean uh, Sansa gets you know a lot of complaints for from some groups of readers on her. Uh, the way she acts and, and the choices that she makes in the first book. Mm-hmm. And, uh, people like to think when they're put in the situation that they are going to be Arya and not Sansa. Uh-huh. Uh, it's very much like people who read Donaldson's Thomas Covenant books and they say, oh God, I can't read it. Uh, a book with such a horrible character uh, who's acting like that. And And I was like, well, you know, if you get dumped in a fantasy world in his situation, I, I think his reactions are are perfectly reasonable. Hmm. I can very much see how his his disbelief, his his constant uh, refusal to accept the situation. Uh, I'm not annoyed by it. I, I understand where he's coming from, even though unfortunately not afflicted by leprosy. Uh, so, <laughs> but yeah, I, I get him, and, and and I get Sansa. You know, I'd like to think that I would be brave and and resourceful and and uh, all of those things. But no, I I have a bit of a Sansa in me. Mm-hmm. Uh, people knowing my temper, on the other hand, might think I'm a bit more of an Ari. <laughs> <laughs> Right. Okay. So when people see you, they see a little Arya, but deep down inside, you know you're more like Sansa. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Thank you so much, Linda. Oh, uh, my pleasure. I, you know, I, I really love discussing these mm-hmm. these books, mm-hmm. and uh, it's been something that uh, you know Elio and I have been doing back and forth for many, many years now. And over it's still, over it's twenty still years. Fun. This has been over twenty years. Yes, and it's still. Uh, a daily part of our lives and we're very very grateful now steve and i cover misa this is the finale of season three this is the episode where bran and sam encounter each other jamie returns to king's landing yigret finds john and shoots him with three arrows and then of course danny becomes the silver-haired savior as the yunkai slaves receive her as their mother here is Steve Osborne. Steve, is Joffrey less handsome when he's happy or when he's pouting? <laughs> Gosh, yeah. Uh, happy Joffrey is a is a really like some people are bad criers, like uh, Toby Maguire, for example. Um, sure. You know, I mean that's Michael Jordan. Yeah. <laughs> Michael Jordan. Yeah, I mean the Toby Maguire, Uncle Ben death, and, and Spider Man is. Uh, that's when you start rooting for the costume. <laughs> and yeah, man, Joffrey, like somehow his face looks upside down when he's happy. <laughs> I think this is the happiest we've seen Joffrey. <laughs> he's uh, morphing into like Veruca Salt in uh, Willy Wonka. <laughs> yeah, he undergoes a transformation, sort of like a reverse transformation. <laughs> Remember when uh, Empire Strikes Back, when Luke undergoes a transformation into like a groundhog or some sort? Oh of... yeah, when he learns the truth about Darth Vader. Yeah, yeah, his whole face, he like he turns into some other creature. Yeah, it's not. Uh... This is sort of the reverse. If you were to throw that in reverse, you'd get <laughs> yeah. Joffrey being happy. Yeah, that's fair. 
Uh, yeah, that's the big takeaway from from the season finale. <laughs> Joffrey's face. Well, I will say this: Jack Gleason, he's tremendous. He just nails that part. I just can't imagine anyone else being that that character. But you know, I have mixed feelings about Joffrey. Um, as a as a character, he's going through a hard time. I mean, it's not it's, easy being Joffrey. Okay. <laughs> you know? Sure. I mean, imagine, uh, imagine you're in job. I mean, I've had a lot of stress at work, too, but I've never crossbowed somebody to death. No. Also, I don't have a crossbow. <laughs> I, you're exactly. not the progeny of Twincest. That's one thing. I don't know. I've never done the 23 in me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I make a lot of assumptions, man. I was, I mean. <laughs> You'd be at like 12 and a half in me. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, all right. Well, enough with the math humor, Steve. <laughs> so dismemberment count yeah. uh, increase. Right, both... Rob, in between the episodes, we, Rob's had his head lopped. He loses his head, and Greywind does too. His wolf. That's gets, true. Yeah, that's he gets fair. dismembered. That was the opening scene. Yeah, that's pretty rough. So, you know, that's uh, the dramatic impact of the Red Wedding coming into this week. Like, what's going to happen? Am I going to get a drink of cool water <laughs> or am I going to yeah, have more of the same, right? So so there was a part, like, it's like, ah, we're just going to pick right up there. Huh? <laughs> okay. And, uh, and so, like, if you had any moment where you're like, maybe, you know, especially if you're going like week to week on this, where you've had an opportunity to just sort of let it settle, and you you get the gumption to go back, right? Because like you said, there's probably some people that were like, "No, not, I'm not, I'm not going with this anymore." And not yet. Now, if you've got any of the uh, any of the swing states are coming in to watch this, and that this could have pushed them, man, they could have turned it off right there. Now, you as the audience member feel like a member of Rob's army, so to speak, right? Like, yeah, you're just gonna you're rubbing it in to me now. And you have that mocking callback to the way that the end of the first season, the King of the North chance, right? Right. And in addition to that, I think it shows an interesting amount of restraint to leave the back end of that red wedding scene to the next episode. Yeah. To know exactly like, okay, we're going to cut this right at the most dramatic part so that the end of episode nine is really the emotional gut punch. And then you're right. When we jump into this episode, it's like just rubbing it in. Yeah. You know, you've been stewing on the gut punch. Now we're, we're going to yeah, rub it right just, in. Just going right into it. And I mean, it is, it is a lot like seeing him get paraded around. Did, did the gut punch continue? Right. It was like you realized, oh, the person hadn't taken their fist out of my stomach yet. And of course that scene bleeds forward to Arya's encounter with the fray men along the road but it's an interesting and really important moment right because i think you're you've had the uh like you said the gut punch you've had this mockery there is a sense of like man there's got to be some is there any justice that can be served right and so here's aria and face to face and there's there's a part of us i imagine most audience members have this like, man, something's got to happen to these guys, right? Mm-hmm. But then it happens at the hands of Arya, and Arya has essentially her first murder. 
So then, then this sense of justice. Well, her first, and, let's say, first premeditated murder. Premeditated right? murder, right? Yeah. Uh, yeah. And so, so we have this moment where it's like, oh, it actually is a continuation of of the gut punch, in my opinion, because instead of it being this like somewhat redemptive moment or or an ushering in of justice, you're like, well, she's not going to be the same ever again. That's right. That's all a part of all this tragedy. Her moment is is just an extension of the tragedy so you get that like well yeah these guys deserve to die and in, in sort of your fictional body count mind but then the way that it happens just further complicates it well you kind of nailed it a little bit when you said she's going to become john wick she is a little john wicky in this sense and it is supposed to sort of scratch that justice itch although i have to say it's always a sad it always sort of brings out a certain sadness for me. You know, I just, I kind of feel like I just don't like seeing it. I mean, I no, know that no. I know that I'm supposed to, there's supposed to be part of me that really enjoys seeing the vengeance. Yeah. See, I didn't yet, at all. I didn't, I didn't enjoy yeah. it. I, 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 in fact, that was the thing. I'm like, it, 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 what it, and it, it was kind of an interesting lesson, right? Because you think you want vengeance, but then at what cost? And I guess that's sort of, you could almost sum that up with the whole Rob narrative and the, kind of all of the narratives that involve vengeance, right? It's like, yeah, you, you're singularly focused on this, but but then every every step you make towards bringing in justice on your terms yields a new, you know, treacherous result that you have to navigate. This isn't a video game where the credits roll. This is all these actions have consequences. And Heather's point was, she's like, well, now it's fitting that she's with the Hound because she's becoming the Hound. That's right. That's right. We already made the Terminator connection. Yeah. Where she's kind of explained to him, like, this guy's innocent. Don't just kill him. And he doesn't. He just knocks him out or whatever. Right. Uh, But at the same time, so you could say that the Hound's becoming a little bit more like her and she's becoming more like the Hound. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So their relationship becomes overlapped in, in many ways. Okay, so there's a major book difference from this point on in the HBO adaptation. In the books, Arya is having wolf dreams just like Bran was. Mm. And just so happens when she's sleeping after the Red Wedding, she finds her mother's body like floating down the river. Mm -hmm. And the wolf pulls Catelyn's body out of the river, and she's discovered by the, the Brothers Without Banners, and... As we know, Beric has been resurrected six or seven times or whatever. So he's like animated by this, this weird fire magic, and he ends up passing that to Catelyn. And so Beric dies, and Catelyn is revived. Well, that seems like a pretty big thing that happens. That's a pretty big thing that happens. They call her Lady Stoneheart from that point on. Lady Sternhart never enters the story. Martin always wanted her to be part of the story. The uh, you know so, Weiss, and, oh. yeah, Weiss and Benioff always wanted to kind of look. We can't. We need to keep the magic to a minimum. Um, uh, you know how I feel about that. Yeah. Well, you probably sided with Weiss and Benioff, right? Yeah, I guess it would depend on the role she plays and then the ramifications of her absence, right. In terms of the narrative. Well, like, what happens is lady Stoneheart, you know, when Beric says, every time I come back, I'm less of who I was or whatever. Mm-hmm. When lady Stoneheart comes back, she's like this vengeance monster. Like that's all that drives her. She just wants vengeance. She's like, you know, all of her sort of 
like pet cemetery. Yeah, she it, she gets pet cemeteried. That's right. That's exactly right. And uh, she comes back and she's totally she wants vengeance against Jamie and all of that business. So um, that's a really major character that we lose from the book narratives. From a dramatic perspective, not bringing her back gives you a little bit more gravity going forward. Having her back is like now you got to you got to reconcile that she's back and there's like and then i think it leads maybe to your other point i was like well how come more people don't get resurrected during this thing right 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 and i think that it also unmoors Arya to an extent i think that knowing that Arya's mother is still in the world and you're still hoping for something of a reunion that's but, a distraction i think yeah maybe so i think that if you completely erase all of Arya's family which essentially that's that's happened. I mean, there's still John who's like lost up north and there's still Sansa who's now a Lannister, I suppose. Everyone that might comfort Arya is gone and basically it leaves her with the only parental figure she has now is the Hound. Right. <laughs> that's a big difference. Well, so. and I yeah, and it was interesting cuz I was reading about um one of the commentaries and I think it was from Martin himself talking about the uh the killing of Rob and, and how it was kind of important to make it real clear to readers and fans and all that. This story isn't the story of starts per se. Yeah. And I think it'd be real easy. And I think that's probably why people are upset about the red wedding is because, you know, you're kind of holding on to that. Like, well, isn't that, isn't, isn't the Stark situation what we're, what we are kind of tethered to and then to untether that feel I think that's the feeling I had. I just felt very fragmented now. I'm like, well, so where, right. So the Starks are a little bit of a device to bring you to all the different places in Westeros. So like John goes North of the wall. So we learn about that through John's eyes, Sansa and Ned go to King's land and we learn about that through their eyes, you know, Arya sort of all over the place. So we're learning about all these different characters. So they are an important device. And Winterfell is sort of the place we're invested in. But even Winterfell's burned down at this point. Right. And so the, the story idea, is, the I mean, you got to be pretty confident that, like, this story is going to carry itself without the initial device that delivered the story. Yeah, right. There has to be more of an element of, of virtue and family values and honor to it in order for any of that to matter initially. So the absence of it is fascinating, too, because it's like at some points it feels like an indictment on those concepts. And we and we see that. Right. We see the idea of the idea of family values with the Tyrion Tywin exchange. Yeah, that was great. They told us so much about their relationship, but it also told us about Tywin's motivations Mm -hmm. because Tywin's really sort of the puppeteer for a lot of these major events. Right, which is fascinating too, because of Tyrion, you know, like we, there's that now fleeting moment where he was the the hand, and there was a sense of like, wow, this is a really an opportunity for him to shine. But at the end of the day, you find out Tywin is just like, yeah, I, you were there as long as I I needed you to be there, mm-hmm. and then now, you know, well, like I think you said last time, Tywin doesn't mind moving his own children around like chess pieces. Yeah, he has a great succinct idea of collectivism versus individualism because he's basically saying look you don't matter 
your sister does not matter. What matters is the larger legacy of the family. Right. Why didn't you why didn't you drown me? Because you're a Lannister. Yeah, you're a Lannister. <laughs> to a certain degree, he's he, that's how that that is he reveals one of the main rules of the Game of Thrones. That's right. Because we've seen it between Ned and then Rob, this is the problem. Right. right? I mean, this is this was Ned's problem and then now Rob, you know, he went and was like, "Well, I want to but I don't want to marry this person for strategy's sake. I want to marry this person." love this scene with uh, Tyrion and Sansa it really does hammer home their age differences yeah he he's really sort of like the cool older uncle and you're really seeing like man these are she's such a teenager and he's just such a you know such a a nice old guy but he's an old guy yeah and they're walking along they're trying to connect Tyrion's looking over his shoulder <laughs> To see sort of Shay, you know, he he's Tyrion's just in the, the worst possible situation, but they end up sort of connecting with sort of a, I don't know, connecting on kind of like a youth worker, troubled youth level. <laughs> yeah. Uh, they're finally kind of like realizing, oh, you have it bad too, you know? Yeah. There's, we, there's we, a, we both kind of yeah. suck. Interesting alliance kind of situation born from it's an interesting because the, the hierarchy of age, the hierarchy of gender um, are kind of thrown out the window a little bit in this exchange. It's uh, an equality of circumstance. And then it completely just unravels because whatever sort of goodwill he's building with her is totally lost when she realizes that the Lannisters killed my brother and mother. Yeah. And you're a Lannister that part echoes right when Tywin is like I you know I spared you because you're a Lannister saying look regardless of what you do and whatever I think of you your name is your identity and so when he steps in there uh, he doesn't get to be Tyrion the guy that's like man I'm on your side I try to get Bran a real cool saddle uh, if it were up to me Ned you know blah 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 doesn't matter it's like you're a Lannister and that's you don't get to have it both ways right you don't get to to have the have the juice that takes you know that gives you the opportunity to eat free elsewhere, but then not be able to to also take the blame. Uh, Ramsey has his own way, Steve. Yeah, I. Uh, You're not supposed to play with your food, by the way. It's just one of the rules. Yeah, Ramsey. Uh, I'm gonna need this. I'm gonna need this subplot to to, to move along here. Well, okay, so Ram- <laughs> well, I'm getting, I'm getting, I'm getting torture fatigue, man. Ramsey's great at sort of, I mean, he's acting, he's a- it's like Bizarro Sean Aston. <laughs> he really is. I, I'm glad you made that connection. That's really great. He's evil, Sean Aston. <laughs> <laughs> um, he needs a goatee, I suppose. <laughs> Heather's still uh, keeping score. Uh, she's like, you know, after all that, she's like, no, still don't care. Still don't feel for him. Still don't feel for him. One, one could say, Steve, is that we, we've now seen the end of Theon and the beginning of Reek. Uh, Yeah, I could see that. So, you know, maybe we're done with that character, but now we have this new character who has this, who Theon is kind of his backstory, but 
He's just, he's got different motivations. He's, he went uh, from Smeagol to Gollum. He, that's right. There we go. Uh, and Theon really has to kind of get to that stage where he says, kill me. Yeah. Yeah, he's completely given up. And that's exactly, and this is, you get the sense, this is what Ramsey's waiting for. In order to break him down, he has to be like at a stage where he's willing to let everything go. And then I can remake him how I want him. Right. Uh, well, and the thing is, is what is what is Theon like? Even if Theon were to have gotten out or rescued, to what end? Um, just to wrap up on Theon, I think that there were a lot of these torture scenes, and it felt like a lot. But I feel like doing less would have made his total deconstruction unbelievable. That's fair, and and but yeah, and that's my my take on on that was just like this better this better become something <laughs> because it's it's a lot and it's uh it's a lot of like all right i mean i don't know you know yeah I, ramsey seems like a pretty terrible person and Theon's getting his uh so so the idea that there's something to come from this is helpful so that's that's interesting so now you have the the john and egret i don't know goodbye official goodbye as opposed to him just taking off and we do get a sense and now we we get full closure on the idea that if there was any thought that maybe John was wavering, it sounds like it was never the case. Do you feel like Ygritte kept, do you think that she meant to maim him and not kill him? Or do you I think, do. I it, think she could have killed him? You think she could have killed him and decides she just wants to hurt him? Yeah. It would have been like breaking all of his favorite records. If he right. had favorite records, that's what she would have done. Well, and I think there's a sense of like each arrow brought with it maybe a certain degree of hope and the hope went both directions. I hope this kills him. I hope he lives. Right. (laughs) For this week's Bird's Eye View, I'll read again from Caroline Larrington's book, Winter is Coming, specifically what she has to say about named weapons in the medieval world and in Game of Thrones. So this is from page 47. In Beowulf, the swords which are particularly valued are the old ones. They carry with them the mana, the aura of those who have been killed by them in past battles. They are redolent of victories won. When an enemy is defeated, the victor takes his sword and makes his defeat part of the weapon's history. Side note here. We can kind of see a little bit of this behind the Iron Throne, which is composed of swords of fallen enemies. Back to Caroline. Beowulf borrows the famous sword Hrunting for his battle against Grendel's mother, although no metal can pierce her hide except for her own ancestral sword displayed on the wall of her den. For the first time in its history, the poet observes Hrunting fails. Beowulf's own royal sword, Nagling, proves unable to prevail against the dragon that is his nemesis, and it shatters on the monster's skull. Medieval swords often have names, signifying a relationship which is closer to that of human and animal than in human and inanimate object. Arya may have to drive her beloved direwolf Nymeria away, but she holds on to Needle as long as she can, and her recovery of it in killing Polliver signifies a major turning point in her fortunes. Ned's greatsword, Ice marks his first and last moments in the story. 
we see him draw it from its wolfskin scabbard to execute Will for his desertion of the Night's Watch, and Ilan Payne uses it to behead its owner at Joffrey's command. So mighty is ice that Tywin has forged it into two new swords by a smith from Volantis. One of three smiths who still know how to work Valyrian steel. The first sword, characteristically named Widow's Whale by its new owner, is presented to Joffrey as a wedding gift. The second is given to Jaime, who in turn gives it to Brienne to take with her in her search for Sansa. Brienne names the blade Oathkeeper in honor of the oath she's sworn to Catelyn. And Longclaw, the Valerian sword of House Mormont, given by Lord Gior, commander of the Night's Watch, to his son Jorah, is recovered by him when Jorah flees Westeros. Longclaw is equipped with a new pommel, ornamented with the direwolf of House Stark, to replace the bear of the Mormonts, and presented to Jon Snow. This is a poignant moment for both giver and receiver. Gior has abandoned hope of seeing his son again, for Jorah's dishonor, selling poachers into slavery, cannot be easily purged. In giving the sword to Jon Snow, Gior, in effect, signals that the young man should be his successor, just as Sam had foretold, and he becomes a kind of second father to him. Swords are charged with an emotional power, which goes far beyond their function in war. So my thanks again to Caroline Larrington for her insights, and that's all for this week.